Good morning. You feel loved. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm Pat Handley, and I don't know most of you, and I'm sorry. I'm the newest pastor to join the staff here. I'm going to be in the pastoral care department working with Rick Lyman and Bill Welsh and Ken Lehman and Sharon Voss. And it's likely that if you ever need a visit, I may be one of the ones who comes to visit you because in this church, we really care about everyone and we don't want anyone ever to feel forgotten or neglected. So when you see me in the corridor, please come up and introduce yourself to me. And I promise you, I'm working really hard trying to remember names. I can remember faces, but names. So um, I am delighted to be here this morning. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, life is a gift. To awaken each day to a new day is a gift from you. I pray that we would be keenly aware of that every day, that we would never take a day for granted or a moment for granted. Bless our hearing to your word this morning, and bless my words, Lord, as I proclaim from your word. I ask this in your name with a grateful heart. Amen. I live in Lake Forest. I commute from Lake Forest for now. And on our property, we have a very large willow tree. You, like, you know what a weeping willow is big. They have a lot of leaves. And in the summertime, that tree gives great shade to our property. And we can see squirrels running around, and the branches are not very strong, so the branches go up and down as the squirrels leap. We see chipmunks around the tree, birds flying in and out of the tree. We have feeders hanging from the tree. At night, I've heard raccoons playing in the tree, never saw them. I've seen an owl a couple of times in the tree and some hawks. Sometime, one time, a really big hawk. We have chickens, and this hawk was, had his eye on the chickens. I could almost see him licking his chops for those chickens. I woke up one morning, and the landscape was changed. All of a sudden, our great willow tree was on its side. I had to look at it like this. We didn't have much of a storm the night before, but we had a lot of rain for about a week. And there was a picture, there was a picture up over there of the roots. And you could see trees have deep roots. We went over to look at this beautiful willow tree that we loved, and the trunk was bare, almost hollow. But the roots were no more than just a couple of feet long. They were very shallow roots. And if a tree doesn't have good deep roots and good nutrition, it can't survive very long. It can't remain. And in a storm, it's just going to blow over pretty easily. So our beloved tree was gone. I used to live in North Carolina before I came here. And we'd climb those beautiful mountains over near the Smoky Mountains, over near Tennessee. And you get to the top of one of those 3,500-foot mountains or 4,000-foot high mountain, and there are lots of bushes. There's blueberries on top of those mountains and flowering bushes. And even some little flowers growing out of rocks, which I could never understand. But there are evergreen trees on top of these mountains, and those evergreen trees get to be pretty tall, and you could see them swaying in the wind when the wind blows, but those trees rarely ever fall down. Do you know why? Because those trees have deep tap roots. It's a big round tap root, and the tap root goes down in the ground about as deep as the tree grows high. So they are well anchored, they're well grounded, that tree looks like it's pretty well grounded in the, in the soil over there. Our lectionary for the next few weeks is looking at being grounded. What does that mean for us spiritually? What does it mean to be grounded? What it means is like the tree being rooted and grounded in what we believe in, knowing what we believe and knowing why we believe it. Because if we spiritually are not well grounded, 
It's not likely that we'll bear much fruit. And when the storms of life come, as they often do, we won't be able to stand in the storm. So today I want to take us deep in an understanding of a key doctrine of the Christian faith, and that's the resurrection. There's an old saying that says, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And if we stand for Jesus, we should know why we stand for Jesus and what we believe. I'd like to start with a question. And my question is, how, and I'd like to see hands, how many of you here feel that you really understand the resurrection? Not the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of the believers, those who believe, the resurrection from the dead. How many, if you really, really understand it and you could teach it, put your hand high. If you're sort of, mm, higher, Eric, higher. <laughs> if you're sort of so-so, put it up this way. I'd like to see your hands. Keep them up for a minute. And then if you're not sure, I mean, like this. Good, because if you all had your hands high, I'd say, well, we'll have some more worship and then I'll do a benediction because I don't want to stand up here and talk about something you already know. But even getting ready for this message, I was refreshed to review the resurrection of the dead. It's a key doctrine of the Christian faith and it's something that we really all should understand so that we know what we believe. Our scripture, which I'm going to read in a moment, is from the Gospel of Luke. I want to give you the setting first. It's um, Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus has already had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. Jesus has been teaching and preaching in the temple and around and about the streets and byways. And he's also been performing miracles. So wherever Jesus goes, there are throngs of people. They've heard about him. They've heard about the miracles. And they're often singing, praise be to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus because he was, they thought he was blasphemous. He was radical, too radical for them. So they were looking for a way to kill him, but they couldn't get close to him because the people were hanging on his every word. Don't you love that? The ones who wanted to do him harm couldn't get close to him. Also, they would plant spies in the crowds to ask quest questions of Jesus that were trick questions. They wanted to try to discredit him. But often it says in the word that the leaders were astonished at his wisdom and at his words, and often they were rendered speechless. I just love that. So the, the setting for today with the Gospel of Luke is that the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees from the Sanhedrin have come to question Jesus. They're standing next to him. And um, the, you probably know this, the Sanhedrin were the religious leaders of the time. They were made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, judges, scribes. The Sadducees were the most powerful group at Jesus' time in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees believed, as did, as, as did Moses in the Old Testament, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the life hereafter, that the good were rewarded and the evil were punished. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And in seminary, I learned that was why they were sad, you see. <laughs> so now you remember those who did not believe in the resurrection were the Sadducees. So please stand with me while we read from the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Luke 20, verses 27 to 38. And I'm reading today from the message because it's just a, it's a translation in today's language. So it's, it's fresh. Some Sadducees came up. This is the Jewish party that denies any possibility of resurrection. They ask, teacher, 
Moses wrote us that if a man dies and leaves a wife but no child, his brother is obligated to take the widow to wife and get her with child. Well, there were once seven brothers. The first took a wife and he died childless. The second married her and died, and then the third. And eventually all seven had their turn but no child. After all that, the wife died. That wife, now in the resurrection, whose wife is she? All seven married her. They were using the word to trick Jesus. But Jesus turns it back on them, and he says, explaining the resurrection. Jesus said marriage is a major preoccupation here, but not there. In other words, not in the afterlife. Those who are included in the resurrection of the dead, that is the believers, will no longer be concerned with marriage, nor, of course, with death. They will have better things to think about, if you can believe it. All ecstasies and intimacies, then, will be with God. Even Moses exclaimed about resurrection at the burning bush, saying, God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. God isn't the God of dead men, but of the living. To God, all are alive. Some of the religious scholars said, teacher, that's a great answer. For a while, anyway, no one dared put questions to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you read the same passage in the Gospel of Mark, I love Mark adds a little bit. He said that Jesus turned to the Sadducees and said, you are way, way off base. And you're off base because you don't know your scriptures and you don't know the ways of God. In other words, he was saying to the Sanhedrins, you, you think that you're free thinkers, but you're really fools. You, believe, you don't believe in what you cannot, you only believe in what you can see, but you don't believe in the omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful God, the God of the universe who alone can raise one from the dead. In the Gospel of John, and you can read, really, Jesus' words about the resurrection throughout the New Testament. I just picked a couple because I wanted, to, I wanted you to see Jesus' words. But Jesus said in John 5, whoever believes has eternal life. They have crossed from death to life, and they no longer belong to death. And he even speaks about those who are in the grave in John 5. All in the grave will hear and the good will rise, and the evil will be condemned. I, as I, was, as I was getting ready for this message, I don't think anyone does a better job um, than Paul in talking about the resurrection. So I want to read with you, if you'll bear with me, some really wonderful words from Paul that explains the resurrection better than I ever could. Dan told me that about three or four years ago, he did a series on the resurrection, but I think Paul holds his own probably even with Dan with the resurrection. So this is from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, now, and, and please stay with me. For me to read to you is really not easy. I'd rather talk. I'd rather talk with you. But this, this word is so clear that I'd like it to speak for itself. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, now let me ask you something profound and yet troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say there is no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. 
And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, then everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we'd be guilty of telling you a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ would be sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. Are you with me so far? <laughs> Good. If corpses can't be raised, then Jesus wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, then we're a sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to be raised with him. Okay, so far? There's still a little more, which I think is wonderful. 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to say, Some skeptic is sure to ask, show me how resurrection works. Give me a diagram. Draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you realize how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this kind of thing, but we do have a parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed, and soon there's a flourishing plant. There is no visual likeness between seed and plant. You can never guess what a tomato is going to look like when you look at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it doesn't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. This image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best, but perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. But only if we keep in mind that when we're raised, we're raised for good. When we're raised, we are alive forever, and that's what eternal life is. And I love what he says here. The corpse that's planted in the ground is no beauty, which is true. But when it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural. The seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference when it goes down in physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. And then Paul talks about that mystery. He says, it's a mystery. I don't understand it. But we are going to die, and in a moment, we will be transformed. We will be changed. As in the blast of a trumpet, we will blink our eyes, and it will all be over. So then he explains that it was sin that made death so frightening, and it was the law that induced guilt that gave its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, and death are gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ. Thank God. So, Paul goes on um, in our lectionary this morning to talk in Thessalonians a little bit more about this. And he explains that the pagans feared death because death was the end for them. But we as believers have the good news of the promise of the resurrection. Therefore, we don't fear death because we know that this life 
is only a passing point through which we go to go on to eternal life with our Lord. Because we know that Jesus died and rose again, we also know that God will bring all those who are asleep, Paul says. And Paul uses the word sleep to referring to the dead, those who have dead, those who are dead. Because sleep is not final. Sleep, death like sleep is not final for the believers. So that for the pagans, it's the end of it. But for those who believe, it's really like sleep. Paul goes on to say, because we believe the truth, because we believe Jesus, that we are saved. When we believe in Jesus, we are set apart. When we believe in Jesus, we inherit this promise of life eternal. So we are to remain rooted and grounded in the truth of what we believe, remain rooted and grounded in Jesus. Do you feel you're a little more up to speed now on the resurrection? Do you think you understand it a little bit better? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So if you are, I'll go on, but there's one more dimension to this message. I'd like to share a little bit about myself. I grew up going to a, to a church, to a Lutheran church with my mother and my sister, and I loved the stories of Jesus as a child. I loved going into the children's area, and I loved seeing pictures of Jesus, and I loved that Jesus said, let the little children come to me. But as I grew older, as I was growing up and becoming better educated, I, and then I became educated as a nurse a long time ago, I thought, virgin birth. Mm. I wasn't so sure about that. And God incarnate, God coming to live on earth, I wasn't so sure of that. So at that time, my prayer was, Lord, I want to believe. If you're real, show me. And if not, I'll just get on with my life. But I always felt that there was more to life than what I was seeing. But I never heard once about having a relationship with Jesus Christ my whole time growing up. And that was what I wanted, but I didn't know how to get there. Now, many of you may have grown up in a family of faith. Many of you may have grown up knowing Jesus and knowing that God was real. Maybe none of you ever doubted the way I did. But for me, my prayer was, God, I want to know you if you're real. But if not, I'm just going to get on and find out what else this something is that I'm, that I'm yearning for. I was a young mom. And I happened to be on a church retreat when someone asked me if I'd ever given my life to Christ. I was embarrassed by the question because there were several people there. And so what I did is pretty typical. I listed all the jobs I was doing in the church. That didn't satisfy them. When I finished the list, they were quiet. And so um, it, became, it became clear to me that they wanted to pray with me to give my life to Christ. And because they so desperately wanted to, I let them pray for me. I still didn't understand what it was they were talking about. While they were praying, my prayer was, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. And God met me there. And um, after I said that prayer, it was as though my eyes were open to a whole new dimension of life, to that reality of the spirit. And I knew I understood that God was real. I understood that Jesus was my redeemer and that my redeemer lives. Psalm 17 in our lectionary today says um, that with assurance, the assurance that the psalmist has, I will call and you will answer, you who saved me by your right hand. So the psalmist knows that his Redeemer lives. The psalmist knows that God is real and God will answer. And that's the assurance that we all have. When we call, God will answer. Sometimes it's not the way we expect 
or the way we would like, but God always answers, and uh, God is the one who saves us. In righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. When I awake, that means when I awake in eternal life, when I awake in glory after this life, I will see you. The psalmist has no doubt at all. But knowing about God, which is what I had as a child, and knowing God are two very different things. I grew up knowing about God. I loved Bible, I loved Bible stories. I loved Sunday school. But I didn't know God in a personal way. And so when I said that prayer, I went from knowing about God to knowing God. There was a young man that uh, a number of us knew in our community who was killed in an accident in his, um, when he graduated from college. And um, one of his friends had a dream about him the night that he died. And the friend who had the dream was not a believer. The friend just had this dream and saw his friend who had been killed. And he said his friend was standing in this bright light, bright light in the dream. And the friend who had died was standing next to Jesus and pointed to Jesus and said, he's here. He's real. I know the young man who died. I know the person who had the dream. And that person woke up and that person became a believer because the young man who had been killed was standing with Jesus in his dream and said, he's here. He's real. The young man who had that dream now knows Jesus personally. And that's what God wants for every one of us. We who are rooted and grounded in Jesus can say along with Job, the lectionary also contains this passage from Job that I absolutely love. I know my Redeemer lives. Job says, I wish my words could be engraved in rock forever. I know my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. And then Job says, how my heart yearns within me. Well, the good news is that we who know Christ as personal Lord and Savior, we who are rooted and grounded in him, know that heart yearning. And we can also proclaim with, with Job, I know my Redeemer lives. So can you say that this morning? Can you say, I know my Redeemer lives? Can you say that with me? I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. Say it, say it like you really know it. That's okay. One more time. I know my Redeemer lives. He lives. So I just will close with saying, if you're here today and you are seeking as I was, may I suggest that it's no accident that you're here today, that God brought you here today to hear the truth of the good news that we Christians celebrate. To know your Redeemer, to know beyond a doubt that your Redeemer lives to know that one day you will be with him in glory in your glorified body is a matter of a simple prayer. It's the prayer that I said, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. You could say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to learn how to follow you. I want to be rooted and grounded in you. Lord, please forgive anything I've ever done to separate myself from you. And then you say, I ask you, Lord, to come and live in me as you're living in her and as you're living in the Christians that I know. And teach me how to follow you. That's the prayer. So if you're here today and that's the prayer of your heart, I want to tell you that God brought you here. God will hear you. And when you start to look around at the world around you after you've said that prayer, 
you will see with an entirely different level of knowing. And you too can say, I know my Redeemer lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen.